3: 298 men, women, and children were murdered while traveling from Amsterdam to Malaysia after an anti-aircraft missile shredded their airliner over Ukraine. No one has ever taken responsibility. But tonight, you will hear the evidence and the testimony of those who lost family in such an unimaginable way.
4: I want to know who killed my children.
5: For 133 years, a colossal statue of General Robert E. Lee towered over a traffic circle near downtown New Orleans. Until, went to the cheers and jeers of onlookers, the Confederacy's most celebrated military hero was hoisted
6: off its pedestal. Really what these monuments were were a lie. A lie in what sense? Well, in the sense that, that Robert E. Lee was used as an example to send a message to the rest of the country and to all the people that lived here that the Confederacy was a noble cause. And that's just not true. This is incredible.
5: Mayor Landrew agreed to show us what's become of Generals <laughs> Lee and Beauregard. They've been gathering dust for more than a year. Wow.
7: No snapping fingers, no fire escape balcony. Nope, this is not your parents' west side story.
8: Everything scares me about this. It's, it's a huge challenge. And ladies, ladies, ladies. And of course, everybody has an expectation. Hey.
7: 60 Minutes spent four months behind the scenes as this epic American production gets set to open on Broadway.
5: I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper.
9: I'm Nora O'Donnell.
3: I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight... On 60 Minutes.
9: Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side you know, the side your mom gave you and shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply.
3: With a single shot, 298 men, women, and children were massacred in Ukraine. The dead were traveling from Amsterdam to Malaysia when an anti-aircraft missile shredded their wide-body airliner. That was six years ago, and no one has been held accountable. The downing of Malaysia Flight 17 was a shock to the world. How could innocent civilians leaving the Netherlands on vacation to Asia lose their lives in a war Russia started with Ukraine? As we first reported in February, after a years-long investigation, Dutch prosecutors say they know who is responsible. This is the story of the hunt for the suspects charged with 298 counts of murder. In a Dutch hangar, heavy with the smell of fuel and fire, Malaysia Flight 17 has been resurrected from 8,000 fragments. The Boeing 777, 20 feet wide and 200 feet long, was torn by an estimated 800 pieces of shrapnel, each the size of a bullet. A warhead detonated 10 feet to the left of Captain Eugene Chu's windscreen, The Dutch Safety Board says the greatest density of holes, 102, is through his window. Shrapnel tore through the cockpit and out the other side. The cockpit sheared away, and the rest of the plane flew another minute and a half. Passengers were thrashed by explosive decompression and a 500-mile-an-hour wind at 40 degrees below zero. One passenger was found wearing his oxygen mask.
4: I want to know who killed my children.
3: It was July 17, 2014, that Samira Kaler walked her boys, 19-year-old Shaka and 11-year-old Miguel, as far as Amsterdam airport security would let her. The youngest boy was worried.
4: He hugged me really tight, and he told me, like, Mom, I'm so afraid to take this plane, you know. I'm so afraid. What happened when the airplane will crash? I told him, Miguel, come on, you've been on flights many times. You are with Shaka. Everything is going just to be fine. He said, you promise me? I said, I promise everything will be okay.
3: The brothers were going to see their grandmother in Bali. Samira planned to come back to the airport the very next day because her middle son, Mika, couldn't get a seat on Flight 17.
2: So I never got a proper goodbye, said a proper goodbye, and that really is something that I have to deal with for the rest of my life.
4: I cannot forgive myself that I promised my baby Miguel That everything will be fine. Who am I to tell him that everything is going to be okay?
3: That's what a son wants to hear from his mother.
4: Yeah. But I feel like I lied to him. Who am I to give him that guarantee? It's been like hell. I feel emptiness. I feel sadness. There is a hole in my heart. It will always hurt and... I miss them every day.
3: Her boys were among 193
10: Dutch citizens on board. It's 9-11 for the Netherlands. Uh, The Netherlands, all people in the Netherlands were very, very, very shocked. Shrines in Dutch homes are common, including
3: the one to Pete Plug's brother, sister-in-law and nephew. His nieces didn't go on their family vacation you had to tell
10: your nieces what happened i don't want to think too much about that moment it's too emotional for me Uh, i saw my nieces falling in each other's arms uh, when they realized their parents and their brother were were dead and uh, it was a terrible terrible moment yeah no one had any understanding that they were going to be flying over a war zone Or You didn't think about it, and uh, and after MH17, we always uh, think about it. Flight
3: 17 was three hours into a 12-hour route when it came within range of a war. In 2014, Russia dismembered its neighbor to the west. It annexed part of Ukraine, and today, pro-Russian militias supplied and manned by Moscow are fighting to control eastern Ukraine. In the days before the Flight 17 murders, two Ukrainian military planes were shot down. But despite that, the day Flight 17 entered the airspace, 160 airliners crossed over Ukraine. It was cloudy. Flight 17, at 33,000 feet, appeared only on radar until it fell through the clouds
2: across 20 square miles. We consider it a national crisis because... And if you think, it was not only that we were doing a criminal investigation, but the most important thing in the beginning was the uh, recovery mission. Andy Kroc is lead investigator for the Netherlands. First, we needed to recover all the casualties to get them back home so that uh, the next of kin could mourn. Actually, we were in Nashville mourning. In a nation so small, it seemed
3: everyone knew someone touched by the murders. For days convoys of hearses stretching beyond sight were met by gauntlets of grief Fred Vesterbecky is the chief prosecutor who's been on the case from the start have all of the remains been identified
11: we were able to identify um, from the 298 uh, casualties 296 so uh, for two people we didn't find any remains
3: with no admission of guilt, 350 investigators from five countries began
2: almost six years of work. We started with multiple scenarios in the beginning. One was, uh, was it an accident that could be discarded quite quickly? The other one, was it an explosion from inside? And the last two, most importantly, was it, was it air-to-air? Like, was it shot by a plane or was it service-to-air?
3: Those scenarios narrowed quickly because of a technique new to the police, civilian Internet investigators. Just days before the murders, Elliot Higgins started a U.K.-based group of online detectives that he calls Bellingcat, named for a fable of mice tying a bell to a cat to warn of danger. Higgins found images crowdsourced online.
12: So this is one of the first videos that was shared online after MH17 was shot down. um, And it was shared claiming that this was a Buck missile launcher. And how do you know across all these images that you're looking at the same convoy? So there's certain details that um, kind of leap out at us. There's the white truck, but you can see there's a um, black exhaust pipe on the side of that truck. It's a very small detail, but it does help us show that it's very similar to the truck that's in other photographs and videos.
3: Matching randomly sourced pictures with geolocation techniques, Higgins and his colleagues spotted an anti-aircraft system in the right place on the right day. Images that had been shot earlier led him to the
12: convoys starting point. And that took us back to a town called Kursk. Um, and in Kursk, there's a missile brigade called the 53rd Air Defense Brigade. And we were able to establish a certain the missile launcher came from that particular brigade. And Kursk is in Russia.
3: And the 53rd Brigade is a Russian military unit.
12: Yes, and it was probably very likely crewed by a mis- uh, Russian um, crew.
3: Higgins also discovered the missile system retreating after the shootdown with one incriminating difference. You're saying that there's a missile missing from this picture?
12: That's right. So there's one there, there's one there, and there's one just out the back of there as well. But there should be a missile between these two missiles.
3: It wasn't long before Elliot Higgins got a call from Dutch investigators. How important was the
2: information that came from Bellingcat? That was pretty groundbreaking at that time. So we've learned a lot from them as well. Uh, But that's just one layer of the evidence, because we have to build up evidence that can stand in court. We also have the witnesses, forensic evidence, etc.
3: The investigators told us layers of evidence came from the weapon itself. Its missile warhead is packed with a unique bow-tie-shaped shrapnel. This signature shrapnel was found in the bodies of the flight crew. Another layer of evidence came in thousands of phone calls intercepted among Russians and their allies. We have just shot down a plane, a rebel commander said, before realizing the catastrophic mistake. Yet another layer of evidence was supplied by Ukrainian villagers. You have eyewitnesses to the missile launch, is that correct? More than one.
11: I'd say I have an eyewitness and how how many, um, uh, I didn't say how many.
3: What military unit did the missile system come from?
11: From the 53rd Brigade of of uh, of the Armed Forces of the Russian Federation.
3: Is there any room for doubt in that?
11: No, there's no doubt at all.
3: They don't know who pushed the button, but this past summer, Dutch prosecutors charged three Russians and a Ukrainian with 298 counts of murder. Sergei Dubinsky was head of intelligence for the pro-Russia rebels in Ukraine. Prosecutors say Oleg Pulatov and Leonid Karchenko were involved in delivering the missile system. The highest-ranking Russian accused is Igor Gherkin, a retired colonel in Russian intelligence. He was in charge of the pro-Russia militia in Ukraine. We found him in Moscow, living under the protection of the Russian government. He told us, someone has to be the scapegoat, so they picked me and others who couldn't even theoretically shoot down this plane. The militia did not bring down the Boeing plane. I have no other comment. How helpful have the Russians been in this investigation over the last five years?
11: I'd say they haven't been helpful at all, because what they should have done is give us all the information and all the proof we needed in this difficult investigation. They should have told us that at the second day after it happened, they should have told us... Uh, we made a mistake or we did something which shouldn't have happened and they uh they should have come forward that that is what they should have done and they never did
3: still unhelpful the russians will not extradite the defendants if they're convicted even though they're not in the courtroom is that enough for you
2: no everybody will be haunted by the fact that they're still out there and not in in custody the trial
3: is scheduled to begin March 9th and will be heard by a panel of three Dutch judges. Samira Kaler told us she will not attend. Pete Plog will not miss it. The families have the right to speak in court, and I wonder what you intend to say.
10: I want them to know what they have done and, uh, uh, and what they have done to the not only to the victims but, only, but also the, the next of kin. They have to feel it.
3: Prosecutors told us their investigation is continuing beyond the trial. They hope to charge additional suspects. For its part, Russia has spun any number of stories about what might have killed 298 innocent victims, stories that so far have not withstood the evidence presented by the silent witness of Malaysia Flight 17. The trial began as planned in March and will likely run through the end of the year. Samira Kaler still has not attended.
9: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500, 500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500.
5: 60 Minutes has been reporting on the debate over Confederate monuments for nearly three years. Today, that debate is as charged as arguments to defund American police departments. When we began our research in 2017 we were surprised to learn why and when many of the monuments were built. We decided to go to New Orleans to talk with the mayor at the time, Mitch Landrew, about his then-controversial decision to remove four Confederate monuments. What we saw looked like a military operation. When the city of New Orleans removed a giant statue of PGT Beauregard, a Confederate general who ordered the first shots fired in the Civil War, they did it in the dead of night. Construction crews wore bulletproof helmets and vests. And police snipers were stationed on rooftops nearby. Mitch Landrew says it was impossible to find a local company that would take the job.
6: Uh, when we put the thing out to bid, the one contractor that got showed up had his life threatened. He had his car bombed. His car was actually? the car was actually firebombed. Um, death threats would come in. And so I couldn't find a crane. I could not find a damn crane. In New Orleans? In you New Orleans. Get a- I couldn't find a crane in Louisiana.
5: Mayor Landrieu eventually found a contractor from out of state and finally, after years of legal wrangling, took down four Confederate monuments. The last one removed was a -a 16-and-a-half-foot bronze statue of General Robert E. Lee. It had stood for 133 years. Until May 19, 2017, when to the cheers and jeers of onlookers, the Confederacy's most celebrated military hero was hoisted off its 68-foot
6: pedestal in a city that I represent that 67% African-American, to have a young African-American girl pass by that statute and look at it every day, I ask myself, am I really preparing for her a, a really good future? Is she feeling like she's getting lifted up by the government or is she being put down? I mean, I think the answer's pretty clear. Really, what these monuments were were a lie. A lie in what sense? Well, in the sense that, that Robert E. Lee was used as an example to send a message to the rest of the country and to all the people that lived here, that the confederacy was a noble cause and that's just not true this is incredible
5: mayor landrew agreed to show us what's become of generals okay. lee and beauregard they've been gathering dust for more than a year
6: pretty big. that's the first time i've seen them there.
5: Is that right uh-huh. they're pretty daunting Amazing. hidden away in this hastily built shed. plywood shed in a location right? we were
6: asked not to reveal and you can see they're in their civil war gear their, their military monuments you know they're there to revere them for their military service in propagation of the Civil War. You look
5: at these monuments, you would never know the Confederacy lost.
6: Well, that was the whole point. The whole point was to convince people that actually they won, and even in their defeat, it was a noble cause. And, of course, the whole point of this is to, is to confront history. I mean, this wasn't an LSU-Alabama football game, where it didn't matter who won or lost, and you just got bragging rights. I mean, we were talking about millions of people enslaved, 600,000 American citizens were killed, and they were trying to destroy the country.
5: The statue's final fate is unclear, but they're unlikely to ever be displayed again on public property in the city of New Orleans.
6: I really did want to make a definitive statement as a white man from the South, as the mayor of a major American city at the dawning of the 21st century, that it's not unclear anymore about what the Civil War was about and who won and what the values are that we should really revere.
5: After the removal of the statues in New Orleans and the violence in Charlottesville, cities, universities, and activists across the country began rethinking what Confederate monuments said about their values. Several were removed in Baltimore and also in Austin, Texas. In Durham, North Carolina, protesters tore down a statue of a Confederate soldier outside an old courthouse. No state has more Confederate monuments to revere or revile than the Commonwealth of Virginia. In Richmond, the capital, there's a contentious debate about what to do about five prominent Confederate statues on Monument Avenue.
13: All these years later, the Civil War, in many ways, is still contested ground. This is contested ground. This is ground zero of this debate? Absolutely. In large part because it was the capital of Confederacy. Julian Hayter is a historian at the University of Richmond. Monument Avenue is not just a national tourist attraction, but an international tourist attraction.
5: Monument Avenue is like a Confederate walk of fame. There are the generals, Robert E. Lee and his horse, Traveler, Stonewall Jackson and Jeb Stewart, the president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis, and finally, Matthew Fontaine Maury, a somewhat more obscure figure who tried and failed to start a Confederate colony in Mexico.
13: Those monuments in many ways are part and parcel of what we call the lost cause. The lost cause, what does that mean? The lost cause, quite frankly, is just the Confederate reinterpretation of the Civil War. It's created almost immediately after the war ends by Confederate leadership. It was hard for a lot of people, in my estimation, to believe that their ancestors died and and fought for an ignoble cause. Um, 600 and some odd thousand people died in the Civil War, which is more Americans than died in the Second World War. And people had to make sense of that. Believers
5: in the Lost Cause, who raised money to build monuments in towns and cities across the country, were often veterans or their widows and children. Lost Cause ideology portrayed Confederate soldiers as heroes defending states' rights against Northern aggression and downplayed slavery's role in causing the war. The first Confederate statue on Monument Avenue wasn't built until 1890, 25 years after the Civil War ended. The last one went up in 1929. You've written that these statues serve white supremacy.
13: Sure. And that, by the way, is a critical component of the lost cause. The idea that African-Americans were not only happy slaves, but they were unprepared for freedom. The idea that African-Americans were helpless after the Civil War. And in that way, it represents a continuation of the ways that whites think about black folks' intellectual abilities, not just during slavery, but shortly thereafter.
5: In the years after slavery was abolished and the Civil War ended, what became known as Jim Crow laws were passed that made African-Americans second-class citizens.
13: There are laws that disenfranchise African-Americans from the the 15th Amendment's right to vote. There are laws that restrict their movements. They represent more broadly the attempt to reassert control over African-Americans after the abolition of slavery.
5: And these monuments are part of that? Oh, absolutely.
13: They're just as much a part of Jim Crow as they are of the Civil War and slavery. That's when they were built. They were built in the 20th century. Very few people seem to understand that these monuments were built during, during segregation. The monuments are just a symbol of the effort to ensure African americans stayed, maybe not in physical bondage, but in bondage and political and economically in this country and in this city.
5: Richmond's mayor, Lavar Stoney, created a commission in 2017 on the future of Monument Avenue.
13: Those who chose to erect those monuments and the figures who are glorified in those monuments, they made some serious attempts to ensure that people who look like me would never hold any political office ever in Virginia.
5: With Charlottesville, I mean, were you surprised at how many people were willing to come out and show their true colors? show their
6: Nazi flags.
13: I think it woke a lot of people up, not just here in the Commonwealth of Virginia, but around
6: the country.
5: There have been protests in Richmond over the future of Monument Avenue. Mayor Stoney says he wants the statues taken down.
13: It is, for me, the greatest example of nostalgia masquerading as as history.
5: It's not real history. It's,
13: well, it's the fake news of their time.
14: Well, he and I just disagree. They're a part of history.
5: William J. Cooper says removing Confederate monuments is a mistake. He was a professor of history at Louisiana State University for 46 years and is a past president of the Southern Historical Association. One of the things that Mitch Landry said that stuck in my mind, he said there's a difference between remembrance of history and reverence for it and that these statues are revering a false history.
14: Well, it's not a false history. It's not a false history. The monument was put up there by real people who had real beliefs. Maybe we don't like their beliefs, but one of the things that bothers me most as a historian is what I call presentism, judging the past by the present, figuring that we're the only moral people, that nobody else could be moral if they didn't think like we think.
5: When you hear people saying that these monuments celebrate white supremacy, because that's sort of the common refrain.
14: when you say celebrate white supremacy, That's not incorrect. I mean, they do celebrate white supremacy, but they weren't put up to celebrate white supremacy. Really? No, they were put up to celebrate the Confederacy.
5: But if the statues do celebrate white supremacy, should they be up today?
14: Well, should Mount Vernon be up today? Should we go burn Monticello down tomorrow? Certainly Thomas Jefferson believed in white supremacy.
5: You're saying this is a slippery slope?
13: It's a very slippery slope. I would say the difference... The critical difference between Washington and Jefferson and Lee, and men like Lee, is that while Washington and Jefferson were com- complicated individuals um, and by our standards uh, thought about ideas in, in an intolerably anachronistic way, they also baked into the Constitution the components that allowed people to dismantle uh, the slave system. They built as much as they destroyed. I cannot say the same thing for the Confederacy.
5: If Professor Hayter had was appointed by Richmond's mayor to the commission that's going to make recommendations on what should happen on Monument Avenue.
13: There are 75 million people in the South who are the descendants of, of, of Confederate soldiers. And who am I to tell them that they cannot celebrate their ancestor in a particular way? But I also have ancestors who were the victims of the slave system. And I see no reason why we can't find a usable way to tell two stories or tell multiple stories. That tell the truth. Not a romanticized version of the truth. Where people are trying to absolve themselves from the deep inhumanities of uh, what the Confederacy stood for. People who are willing to face down history for what it is. And, and all its ugliness. And all its beauty. Do you believe the statues should be removed? No. Um, I'm a historian. And uh, I think that the statues should stay with... a a footnote of epic proportions. Essentially, you're suggesting... I'm suggesting we do a little bit of historical (laughs) jujitsu. Right? I'm suggesting we use the scale and grandeur of those monuments against themselves. I think we lack imagination when we talk about memorials. It's all or nothing. It's leave them this way or tear them down, as if there's nothing in between that we could do to tell a more enriching story about American history.
5: Historians call it recontextualization, the addition of signs or markers with information about when and why the statues were built to help people see old monuments in a new light. So you'd like to see signs or placards or historical Anywhere, lessons yeah. somewhere Anywhere around, around here. here? Right.
13: Perhaps even on this sidewalk. So that as people approach the statue... They can read the
5: story of... And they can understand the context Absolutely. in which it was built. Absolutely. And the reason it was built. Yep.
13: You could have a, a glass placard here, uh-huh. and etched into that glass placard would be a story... And then when you look through it, you can still see the Lee Monument, Mm. but you see it through the lens of a more accurate historical depiction.
5: Whatever recommendations made by Julian Hader and the monument commission he serves on may have a limited impact. Unlike in New Orleans, the Confederate statues here may be protected by state law. And the Republican-controlled Virginia General Assembly is unlikely to approve major changes anytime soon. One person who that might have disappointed is Robert E. Lee. Before he died in 1870, he was on record opposing the building of Civil War monuments in the North and the South. Wiser, he once wrote, not to keep open the sores of war. Last month, the protesters tore down Jefferson Davis' statue on Monument Avenue. President Trump recently signed an executive order designed to prevent protesters from doing just that. However, Mayor Stoney has since removed eight other Confederate monuments in Richmond, and Virginia's governor has ordered General Robert E. Lee's statue, the last one left on Monument Avenue, to be taken down as soon as possible.
7: Man, that sunset is
2: gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just
5: waiting for you.
7: I could stay here forever.
2: Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today.
7: Broadway is dark. Curtains won't rise again before the new year. But we have a revival of our look at the new production of West Side Story. As we first reported this February, days before it opened and weeks before COVID-19 temporarily shut it down, a new team of creative artists has staged a radical re-envisioning of the classic musical. When the original West Side Story opened in 1957, it caused a sensation with the innovative fusion of dance, music, and theater, a reimagining of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Tony and Maria are the star-crossed lovers rival street gangs, the Jets and the Sharks, become the Montagues and the Capulets. We were given unprecedented access to the making of the new production. It's stripped down, fast and gritty, a West Side story for the 21st century. We started rolling our cameras this past October in a Manhattan dance studio. Who knows? The first notes of Leonard Bernstein's music and Stephen Sondheim's lyrics stirred treasured memories. I will know right away as soon as it's But Evo Van Hove, a Tony Award-winning director known for his cutting-edge productions, promises something new, a more raw and raging West Side story.
1: When you're a jet, you're the swing in this thing. Little boy, you're a man,
7: it's Van Hove's first Broadway musical. Updating this American masterpiece was his idea. The Belgian director says the story is universal. Jumping into this American classic, there must be things about this that just
8: scare you. Everything scares me about this. It's, it's a huge challenge because uh, uh, everything has to be on the highest level, the singing, the dancing, and the acting. And, of course, everybody has an expectation. You and push!
7: The songs and Arthur Lawrence's story are the same, but the dancing, all new. Okay, one more time. Van Hove tapped choreographer Anna Teresa de Kiersmacher...
1: One, two,
7: his friend and fellow Belgian to design more contemporary, street-influenced movement.
1: Why waste my time in America? You forget I am in America.
0: Can the ladies could you think that there is a way that you would be closer to the guys? Let's try once not to have unified steps. On the first curve, you don't gonna come in the straight long.
7: This is your first Broadway production.
0: Yes, yes. And this um, is
7: a different animal.
0: Would you call it an animal? <laughs> what kind of animal? <laughs> a lion? A serpent? A dragon? Maybe a dragon. <laughs> <No>?
7: <laughs> is that what it feels like sometimes?
0: It's huge. It's a lot of people. There's a lot at stake, and it, it's teamwork. You know, with clear leaders being
7: Eva and I.
0: Ivo. tell me what is the situation between... their
7: young cast reflects America today in this version the jets are not all white and the sharks are not just Puerto Ricans. they're recent latino immigrants 33 of the 50 cast members are making their Broadway debuts
9: uh,
8: It's not easy to sing these songs. You have to dance at the same time most of the time and you have to be able to act. So that's a very difficult thing when you're very young and when you don't have a lot of experience. The shocks will be here. Van Hove
7: is animated,
8: decisive. De Kiersmacher
7: calls herself a patient collaborator.
0: So I don't need a a military line like this. I I don't want to organize it like an army. I'm not a general. I'm not like chak, 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 chak. We start to shape it together with the dancers.
7: Her style is vastly different from the original balletic dancing of director-choreographer Jerome Robbins, immortalized in the 1961 movie. So how do you change something like America? The way she throws the dress around.
0: Those dresses are very beautiful. They really enlarge the movement. That's not the way young people dance these days.
7: So that's, that's
8: out. That's, that's out. No snapping of the fingers. No snapping of no, the fingers. No, because finger. it's not in the score. It's an invention of Sharon Robbins, and we should respect that, you know? You can be inspired by other people, but not stealing from them, I think. Vamos, vamos.
7: This was their vision. After five weeks in the rehearsal hall, the last run through before moving to the theater. Two days later, on November 18th, the production went uptown to the Broadway Theater. We
9: made it, here we are.
7: The scenery is an enormous black wall that opens up to reveal two hidden sets central to van hove's reimagining cameras everywhere 25 of them projecting images onto the wall designed to intensify the action it's video on a scale broadway has never seen
0: I would like sort of curve
7: it. The Kiersmacher had to scale up her dancers' movements to fit the bigger space and giant images.
8: Video-wise, we have now to explore what we do there.
7: Veteran producer Scott Rudin is the money and power behind this production. So when the audience walks in, that's what they're going to see? That's it. That's, That's West Side Story. It's a
3: black box, fully exposed, guts and all. It's not West Side Story of 1957. It's just not that. It's huge. Are you
7: concerned at all that that video image will overwhelm your actors on stage?
3: I think we're managing our way into it. There are places where I think it still does slightly overwhelm or kind of dwarf the actors, and some places where it's incredibly exciting that it's there. But it's, it's, a, it's been a fascinating toolkit to play with.
9: It is offstage.
7: Isaac Powell and Shireen Pimentel oh, play the doomed lovers Tony and Maria. They took us to what they call a secret set, four flights up above the stage, out of sight of the audience. Um,
9: They have a camera set up
12: right here.
7: In what was once a dressing room, now is Maria's bedroom. Uh,
9: There's a camera set up in the bedroom.
7: So in in the play, you'll be running up and down the stairs to come to your room. Yep. So is this a theater or a movie set? Why does it have to be either?
9: Exactly. It's both. It's, it's happening in real
7: yeah. time. Seamlessly? Sometimes. Of course, there are bound to be bumps and, yeah. and
1: kinks that need to be
8: ironed out. I saw him now into his frame. We
7: saw some of those kinks the first time in the theater Van Hove rehearsed the bedroom scene when Maria learns Tony has killed her brother. It was like directing a movie. He blocked it with the actors and cameras, then went down to the theater to watch it unfold on the video wall.
8: I see him again. But this goes wrong, huh? No, oh, no. She should not stand there. It's out of focus. Out of focus, guys. Uh, this is so many mistakes. <laughs> yeah, I give you a moment, but I was there already explaining five times. You know, it's not that difficult. Tell me.
7: We were here one day when you were rehearsing the um, bedroom scene upstairs. The camera was out of focus, actors were out of position, you were getting angry. You at one point said, everything is wrong, so much of this is wrong. (laughs) Did you ever have any questions through that about the use of the video
8: like that? No, 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 no. Never, it never never made you have doubt. The challenges were high. And of course, we know that it will be a, a journey. You know, and it took us a while to bring all the elements, you know, in a perfect balance. So, no, it's a normal process. In this case, a very intense one. Come on. 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 Bang. Where's the ring? Something else they had to fix, the rain.
7: A deluge that soaks the actors and sometimes musicians in the orchestra pit. Let's go on. The calm in the middle of the storm? Evo Van Hove, you take notes on everything. The next day, you go up and you have production meetings with the, with the crew, and you you go work with the actors. I mean, this seems like
8: a grueling process. I, I love that. I feel like a, a, a fish in the ocean. You know. And and the ocean is a dangerous place to be sometimes, you know, but also a great place to be. I love the sometimes violent, but always the the high energy of a rehearsal uh, uh, process. As the show evolved,
7: we saw as much drama offstage as on.
13: Sharks, here's what we're missing.
7: Two Latin dance consultants were brought in to add more authenticity and Broadway flair to de Kiersbacher's choreography.
0: Try that again, please. I don't like when they start to fuzzle with your material.
7: Is that what they were doing, fuzzling with your material?
0: Well, there is a certain codified language in Broadway. You know, how a number has to end, how you have to build tension, you know. And uh, it's true, I don't have so much experience about that. I think finally it turned out well, but I would be lying if I say that it went, like, smoothly like
7: this, you know. Somewhere... A place for us. It seemed the show was snake bit. Isaac Powell, Tony, injured his knee and had to take a month off. That delayed opening night by two weeks. Veteran actor Ben Cook, who played Riff, the leader of the Jets, dislocated his shoulder and had to leave the show six weeks before opening. Giving 22-year-old castmate Daron Jones, a newcomer to Broadway, the break of a lifetime. Then protest erupted over Amar Ramasar, a dancer with the New York City Ballet who plays the leader of the Sharks. He's been named in a civil suit alleging he participated in an exchange of explicit pictures of female dancers, which he contests. Ramasar was initially fired by the New York City Ballet.
3: The arbitrator found that there had been no firing offense. He got reinstated. I don't excuse it. I think what he did was really stupid. I mean, am I, am I supposed to replace him in the show? I'm not going to do that.
7: After 19 weeks, the performances have been polished. The video fine-tuned. The dancing distinct. They're ready after all the blood, sweat, and tears.
0: It's a bit like a battlefield, you know? It's a battlefield, and you have to behave
7: like a a general. You told us originally that you are not a general.
0: Yeah, I know. I'm not a general, but I'm a dancer, so I mean I'm flexible. I have patience. In Italian, they say, lo voluto la bicicletta. They say, you wanted the bicycle, so now you have to... Pedal. You have to pedal, you know? I made the choice of doing this. I knew it was not going to be easy, so lo volute la bicicletta.
7: Yeah, no, pedal. <laughs> and now they ride into the uncertainty
8: of opening night. The Jets are in gear. Our cylinders are clinking. I was at the birth of this thing. I know exactly what I wanted it to be.
9: Here come the, the
8: whole vision has been realized, and I'm... I'm really happy with that. We're drawing the line, so keep your noses hidden. Am I always successful? No. Will this be successful? We'll see. It's up to you, you know, to judge that. It's not up to me. I did everything possible with my team. Here come to Jess yeah! and we're gonna be every last fucking game on the whole parking street on the whole
3: I'm Scott Pelley. We'll be back
1: next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey.